Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. We're going to read Matthew chapter 1 today. The genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Isaiah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile of Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Amen. Uh, that's why uh, Emma's a deputy head teacher, and uh, we got her to read that passage because all her family decided to come to church. <laughs> uh, did she pass? You can say at your family lunch afterwards. Okay. Uh, I once heard a philosopher say, There's four big questions every person in this world needs to answer. Uh, The first question is a question of destiny. Where am I going? The second question is a question of purpose. Why am I here? The third question is a question of morality. What's right and wrong and who decides? So there's a question of destiny, my eternal destiny. There's a question of purpose. Why am I here? There's a question of morality. How should I live? And what's the fourth question? A question of origin. Where have I come from? Who am I? And why am I who I am? Now, my sister-in-law on the front row there works full-time as a genealogist in Dublin. And she tells me people, especially Americans looking for that Irish ancestor, want to know their genealogy because we want to know, we want to know who we are. We want to know where we've come from. We want to know the people that have shaped us, uh, the battles in our past that have made us who we are. Why am I who I am and the way I am. Knowing my origin story gives me grounding, connectedness, identity, rootedness, 
purpose in a world that often feels chaotic, unstable, and strange. I was chatting to another friend in the car yesterday, going to Croke Park, and he's a genealogist, as it happens. And he says teenagers often need to know their past because when it's chaotic in life, they have a rootedness. Who am I? Where have I come from? Matthew 1 tells us the origin and the genealogy of Jesus, who he is, where he's come from. But it also tells us who we can become as we know him. His identity can become our identity. So it's not just who he is and where he's from. It's how we can become part of his story. Now, the opening words of Matthew's gospel in Greek are biblios henesos. There we go. The book of Genesis. You don't need to be a Greek scholar to know the Biblios Henesos, uh, uh, if I can pronounce it, Henesos, uh, I can't pronounce it. Uh, <laughs> I'm not a Greek scholar, there we go. Uh, but isn't that amazing that the first two words of the New Testament are basically the first two words of the Old Testament, the book of beginnings, the book of origin, the book of Genesis. It's as if Matthew is deliberately telling us I want not only to tell you why Jesus is here and who he is and where he comes from. I want to tell the whole world who they can become through him. That the deepest beginnings in history is not the birth of the world, but the birth of the Messiah of this world. And if you know him, you can discover that rootedness, connectedness, grounding, purpose, identity that we all need. So how does Jesus' genealogy tell us not just who he is, but who we are? Two words, grace and homecoming. Grace. It may have been obvious to you. It may not have been. But it was very obvious to every first century Jewish reader that the, gene- the genealogy of Jesus contains four irregularities, four females. And in the ancient world, as, as uh, genealogy mainly focused on the men, to have these four females was very strange and unusual. And these four females, these four women, were Gentiles. Which is strange when you remember verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, son of the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew wants to show us that Jesus is a Jew from the line of Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, and from King David, the king of the Jewish people. So he's pure, he's some good stock, he's, a, he's the Messiah of the Jews. And yet these four women are, are outsiders, and they're Gentiles, and they're racially and morally irregular. The four women are Tamar from Genesis 38, Rahab from Joshua 2, Ruth, who has her own book in the Bible, and Bathsheba from 2 Samuel 11. Tamar was a Canaanite. Rahab was from Jericho. Ruth was a Moabitess. And Bathsheba, well, she's famously the wife of Uriah, a Hittite. Tamar is the the daughter-in-law obliged to play the prostitute in order to trick her father-in-law into keeping his promises to give her a son. The fruit of this trickery and incest was a child named Perez, who continues the line of the Messiah. So Tamar, the Canaanite, who had sex with her father, is a great-grandmother of the Jewish Messiah. Rahab is is the famous for being a prostitute. 
but is actually best known in the Bible for not being a prostitute, but for aiding and assisting the 12 spies that went to search out the promised land. And in the New Testament, she's an example of faith, Hebrews 11, and works, James chapter 2. So Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho, becomes one of the great-grandmothers of the Messiah. Ruth, well, Ruth was a Moabitess. And, uh, and the Moabite story is tragically similar to the story of Tamar. Abraham's nephew Lot was getting old and nearing death, and his daughters were unmarried. So on consecutive nights, they got him drunk so they could both sleep with him to ensure they preserved the family line. The younger daughter became the matriarch of the Ammonites, and the older daughter became the matriarch of the Moabites. Another incest story, and Ruth was a Moabite. Like Rahab, Ruth had extraordinary faith and, uh, and made one of the most famous vows ever made in history to her aging, widowed mother-in-law, Naomi. As Ruth's story unfolds, she becomes the father of Obed, who continues the family line of the Messiah. Ruth is the most morally noble of the four women. So Ruth, the Moabitess, becomes the great-grandmother of Jesus. And the fourth woman, well, actually... She's not even named, is she? Did you see that? Uriah's wife, erasing her name out of the story. There's lots of speculation why Matthew did it. No one quite knows, but maybe it's because it was embarrassing. Who was Uriah's wife? Oh, yes, Bathsheba. And why was Bathsheba controversial? Well, it was to do with the king of Israel, David. If Jesus is from the line of David, I hope it's a pure line. What was David's story again? Do you remember Uriah's wife? Uh, Bathsheba may be more of a victim than someone acting with agency. She was bathing naked and, and David saw her beauty. And so even though she was married to Uriah, one of his best soldiers who was out fighting, serving the king in duty and war, David lusted after Bathsheba as he saw her naked and took her for himself and she became pregnant, and so David panics and tries to cover his tracks. And first he has Uriah come home from the battlefield and says, go and sleep with your wife. But Uriah's too morally righteous for that. Why would I sleep with my wife when the men are out? I'm serving the king out on field. So he, so he doesn't. And so David has another tactic. He says, Let, let's have Uriah exposed in battle, isolated, unprotected, so he dies in battle, which he does. David then takes Bathsheba as his wife. The first child dies, and the second is called Solomon, who will be the first successor to David's throne. The omission of Bathsheba's name tells its own story. Jesus doesn't come from a very pure Jewish line, and David himself wasn't particularly pure. It's a bit embarrassing if you're trying to improve how pure this Jewish Messiah is. She's the wife of a Hittite, but she too becomes a great-grandmother of the Messiah from the line of David. Matthew is no fool, friends. He does all this very deliberately. He includes these irregular women deliberately. If he wanted to evoke a history of Israel in a general way, one would expect him for the, true, for the true matriarchs to show up. Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, Rachel. But those four names don't get mentioned. But the four matriarchs are the four Gentile outsider women. In three of the four cases, they are sexually and morally irregular. Aside from Ruth, who is absolutely a model for us all, few parents use the behavior of Tamar or the story of David and Bathsheba to teach their children 
sexual ethics. One gets the impression that Matthew poured over his Old Testament until he could locate the most questionable liaisons possible and insert them into the record. He wants to highlight the black sheep of the family. He wants to draw attention to them. Why? 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 And I think there's two reasons. The first reason is, would well, you remember there's another slightly questionable woman who enters the story? She was just a teenager. And she was trying to tell everyone that even though she was pregnant, she was a virgin. Well, small town Bethlehem probably wouldn't have believed that, would they? They thought she was just a morally no good teenager, up to no good. And some Jewish men, I'm sure, thought, well, let's stone her. And yet the four women in the story who get included, they acted with such faith and courage and initiative and bravery, given their lot in life. Imagine trying to describe the virgin birth for the first time in history. I mean, most people have never believed it on first hearing. Mary had to tell people, it's, it's, I didn't, it, it's, it's of the, you can imagine, not many people would have believed it the first time. And Matthew, maybe he wants to protect her and her reputation. And he wants to point out that there's lots of irregularities and Mary's very welcome. Secondly, these irregularities teach us a key theme of the gospel in itself. The gospel of Matthew is going to tell us that this gospel is for anyone and everyone because this gospel comes by grace. The message couldn't be clearer. Jesus' salvation doesn't come to the pure. Jesus' salvation isn't for one particular race or gender or background or person of moral repute. Jesus' salvation is not given according to any Jewish or human understanding of what it is to be worthy or pure. Jesus' salvation comes by grace. I'm here for anyone and anyone. And all the way back in the beginning, in Abraham, God wanted to save the Jews and the Gentiles by grace. It's as if Matthew wants to preach the gospel even through the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew is calling all of us, repent and believe, become part of the story doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter your sins. It doesn't matter your sexual exploits. It doesn't matter if you've been the victim or if you were the abuser. Of course, it matters in, the, in, in your, but not in terms of salvation. There's grace enough for you if you're the victim, and there's grace enough for you through repentance if you're the abuser. Your story can be rewritten being a victim of sexual assault or any other sexual irregularity, whatever your agency does not need to define your future, you can have a new origin story, a new innocence, a new purity, a new clean record. Jesus is for anyone and everyone, and his grace is always deep enough. The verse in the book of Hebrews that powerfully describes this says it this way. I'm not sure what's going on with the clicker. Every time I click and it doesn't work, Owen, if you can do it, thanks. Both the, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Both the one who makes people holy. That's Jesus. He makes people holy. And those who have been made holy, that's us. Those who have faith in Christ can be made holy. We can be given a new start. We can be given a new origin story. We can be given a new purity. We can be given a new innocence. We can be given a new family tree. 
we can be woven in. He says, we are of the same family. Through faith, we become part of the same family of Jesus. Along with Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, Jesus becomes our older brother. We are woven into the same family. Galatians chapter 3 tells us that we can become children of Abraham through faith in Christ Jesus. And there is neither male nor female, Gentile nor Jew, slave nor free. Those with a clean record and those with a very dark record, we are all one in Christ Jesus through faith in the same family. All the way back to Abraham, we're adopted. And the most precious line, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Jesus isn't ashamed of his family members. I cried when I wrote this. <laughs> Matthew may have missed out Bathsheba's name because the Jews were embarrassed by her story. Jesus isn't embarrassed by her story. Jesus claims Bathsheba as his own. He is not ashamed of her. He loves her. And he loves Tamar, Ruth, and Rahab. Jesus is not ashamed to call them his sisters. And nor is Jesus ashamed to call any of you a brother or sister. If you respond in faith to Christ, you can never be too gone, too broken, too backfallen, too irregular, too sexually exploited, or be the abuser. Your name can get written into the family tree. The family tree is a select name that tells you the genealogy and the line of Jesus. But the family tree actually is just a little minutiae of the whole family. The family gets all written into another book in the Bible called the Book of Life. The book of life is full of all Jesus' family members. And Jesus loves every one of them. And it tells us that he's not only our elder brother, he's our great high priest. And every morning, as Jesus wakes up, this is obviously not quite true, he gets out his book of life in his morning devotions. And he says, I've got a few people on my prayer list. Let me start praying for my family. And he prays for you. Every day, for all eternity. Through faith, you can become part of a family where it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter your past, you're adopted in. Jesus is now in heaven with Ramar, uh, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, and he delights in them, and he delights in you. Sometimes we may be ashamed of Jesus because we fear what our colleagues and our friends and our family will think of us. He's never ashamed of us. That's grace. He's never ashamed of you, even when you might be tempted to be ashamed of him. Who am I? Am I special? Do I have a purpose? What is my origin story, my value? Could you have a better origin story than this one? Could I give you a greater value and meaning than to be part of the eternal family of Jesus that your name was written in the book of life and he's not ashamed to call you a brother and sister and he delights in you and he's praying for you every day and I'm adopted into the line of Abraham and David and Jesus by faith? It's all grace. And if you've had a lousy family and if your parents let you down and if you've always felt like an outsider and if you were spoiled in any way, and you thought, my life will never amount to anything. Jesus says, no. No. I'm going to give you a new origin story. Come into my family by grace. Let me write your name in the book of life. You can have an eternal significance that will go past beyond any dreams 
you could ever have for your own life. Some of you have been longing to know who you really are. Some of you have always felt like the irregular one that never quite belonged. And some of you go, you know, I always did belong in this world, but I still didn't quite know who I was as I went through the rat race of life. Jesus says, come and be part of my family. Come and know me, not just as your big brother and your great high priest, but as your Savior and Lord. And what happens if you know Jesus as if he becomes your big brother? What happens? Well, the second word in the story is homecoming. The exile is over. Jesus wants to bring you home. Matthew structures his genealogy around two turning points. There's 14 generations either side of the turning point. Verse 17 summarizes it. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Verses 1 to 6, the first section rises from Abraham to King David. That's the first turning point, the golden era of King David, the promise of this eternal kingdom. The second set of 14 uh, descends to the Babylonian exile. The everlasting kingdom of David seems a distant memory. Jerusalem is ransacked. The temple is destroyed. The people are taken into Babylon, far from home, uh, in a foreign land with foreign tongues and a foreign God. The Jews were no longer at home. They were exiled. But then the last one, the section, the third, rises again from the exile of, uh, of, of the Jews to the birth of Jesus the Messiah. Here is the true anointed king from the line of Abraham to establish the eternal kingdom. You see, the Jews came home 70 years after they were exiled under Cyrus the Great, the the Persian. He gave permission, as he did to all his subjects, to go back home and to worship their own gods. He had a different strategy than Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian rulers. But you only have to read the events after the Jews returned, Nehemiah and Ezra and Malachi and Haggai and those Old Testament books, and you realize the Jews never really felt like they were home. They were still under a foreign rule. They were small. They were pathetic. The glory of God never returned. The golden era of David never came back. And so at the time of Jesus' birth, the Jews are still under foreign rule and very small and insignificant. And the Romans, as we'll see in chapter 2, are really ruling the world on earth. So in many ways, the Jews felt like they were in exile, waiting for their Messiah to defeat the foreign rulers and bring them home. And Matthew said, the exile's over because a baby has been born, the Messiah. He doesn't come with political power, military might. He comes in weakness. As we just sang, you could have marched in all your glory into the heart of Rome, showed them splendor like they'd never known, But you wrote a better story in humble Bethlehem, creator in the arms of common men, the king who reigns from a manger throne. How would he bring the exile to an end? How would he bring us home? Well, you see, the true exile goes much further back than Babylon. Once humanity lived in a paradise, a perfect paradise of beauty and joy and glory, and we were kicked out of that garden because we turned our back on the one who made us. We knew him intimately and we flourished as humans and so did our society and our world. But when we sinned and we were kicked out of the garden, we became restless wanderers. And none of us have ever quite known who we are since that God-forsaken day that we turned our back on our creator. We've always had a sense of alienation and aloneness. Even in our best moments as humanity, oh, they are fleeting. 
We struggle to rest and be content in who we are. We always want more. We have a desperate need to prove ourselves. And it's not just within ourselves that we're alienated. We're alienated from one another and particularly those like us. And in our prayers this morning, we heard about alienation at a horrible level. And we struggle to look after the good world that the Lord has given us. Our world doesn't feel like a home anymore. In fact, if we stop for a moment, why do we feel that this world should be our home? but never quite feels like it's home. We have this collective memory as humanity that, yeah, this world should be ours, but it's not. What's, and it, where does that come from? If it's just a random chaotic big bang and a random process of evolution, this world was never our home. It's just a chaotic random accident. But if it once was our home and we lived with God in the garden and then we turned our back and it got broken and cursed, that makes sense of everything in our intuitions. The Bible tells us the reason we don't feel at home is because we've lost our home here, because we turned our back on God. And Matthew says, the exile's over for humanity, not just for the Jews. You can all come home. The king who reigns from a manger throne, from heaven to the cradle, from cradle to the cross. The grave couldn't hold him. Our God has overcome. Let heaven and nature sing. This is our king. Jesus would become an irregular outsider on a cross, the one who was abused, taking the punishment for our sin. He was exiled to bring us home by grace. We can be reconciled to God, our Father, through his birth, death, and resurrection, the birth, death, and resurrection of Israel's Messiah. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, they've all gone home. They're home. They're with Jesus now in their home, in the Father's house. And Jesus says to his disciples, I've gone there to prepare a room for every one of you. You can all have your own room. People talk, don't they, about buying their forever homes. When I have my forever home, then I'll feel like I'm happy. Jesus says, there's only one place you'll ever feel like you found your forever home, and it's not in this earth. It's in the world to come. Each of us has a home waiting for us if we'll respond to Jesus. Friends, if this world is purely a materialistic universe as our secular origin story would tell us, then this world is just random, chaotic, and it has no meaning, rhyme, or morality inherent to it. We'll never feel at home if it's just one big accident. And if you think too long and hard about that secular story, as many great atheist philosophers have done, it will lead to despair and ruin. But there's another origin story. And Matthew says, let me tell it to you all this Christmas about another person who's the hero of this story and how he came to bring you home. It's a story of grace. It's for anyone and everyone, no matter how irregular you might be. It's a story of coming home this Christmas. Don't put your hopes in a perfect Christmas. It will let you down. Don't put your hopes in a perfect home. You'll never find it. Put your hope in a perfect Savior and his grace as we wait for his second coming, when he really will bring us home. So we're going to think about responding through the bread and the wine. And actually, this is an invitation to come home to the table, the living room table, the dining room table of Jesus through grace. And the table says every one of us was an irregular. I don't care your past. Jesus says we're all fallen short of the glory of God. 
and we all need to be brought home. None of us have a clean record. In fact, those of us that think we have a clean record are most likely to miss grace because we'll think we'll earn it. Those that know they don't have a clean record go, yeah, bring me home. We all need to hear again that we don't have a clean record. But the Jewish Messiah who was born, he came, he lived, he died, he rose, and he invites us to come home. And all you do is repent of your sin and believe in him. And he says, you'll be home now and forever. So this is a a chance for those of you that call yourselves followers of Jesus the Messiah to come and eat and drink again and remind yourself afresh where your true home is. It's not in this earth. It's not in a forever home. It's not in a perfect Christmas. It's in him and it's in heaven. And to wait expectantly for not his first coming, but his second coming. If you're not a follower of Jesus the Messiah, then we encourage you to stay in your seats and consider, would you like to invite him to be your big brother, your savior and your Lord, and to come home? And if you do, come forward, take the bread and the wine, and then come and speak to myself or Neil afterwards. So as we sing, Nick, you can come up, brother, and we'll uh, sing. Come down the middle aisle. Then we have two different stations, and then go down the side aisle just to help with the flow of receiving the communion. There is... Uh, non-alcoholic options and all the bread is gluten-free. Let me uh, pray, then we're going to sing. Come forward as and when you want to take the bread and wine and then Neil, take it back to your seats and Neil will lead us in taking it together. Why don't we stand and I'll pray. Let's take a moment to be quiet as we approach our Savior King. Think on his grace. Think about what it is to come home, to know who you truly are. I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would use this Advent season of of waiting and expecting preparing ourselves for Jesus, not so much to think about his first coming, but to think about his return when we will all finally go home and to remember that this world is fleeting and however wonderful or hard our Christmases are, that that this isn't where our home really is. And no matter what home we have on this earth, it will never really feel like our forever home. I pray for those brothers and sisters here and friends and guests who have known that they've always felt like the outsider, the irregular, and there's maybe things in their past like these ladies that are just hard to deal with. I pray they would know that there's grace for them to give them a new start and to bring them home. And I pray for those of us that call you our big brother, our Messiah, our Lord and Savior, that we would never think we had a clean record, but we would, as we take the bread and wine, remember what you did as you died on a cross to forgive us of our sin adopt us into your family and into the book of life. We give you thanks and praise in your name. Amen.